I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everyone. It's John here. You can probably tell that it's my voice, it's my podcast, because you know it's me here. Anyway, it's Sunday afternoon as I record this. Um, I'm just jumping in before the credits to let you know something, uh, for, partly because of lockdown, partly for reasons that, that will be explained momentarily. Our production schedules on Skylines have got a little bit lax of late, which means that um, our main interviewee this week, uh, my, my pal Claire, who's been under lockdown in Italy, um, is a time of writing no longer under lockdown because it's taken us so long to get this episode together that by the time we did, uh, Italy had raised its lockdown. But it's still kind of a fascinating interview and I thought the best way of dealing with it was to uh, run that and then go back to Claire and drop in a little insert afterwards in which she tells us what the situation is now. Let's get on with the podcast. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge, and this is the penultimate episode of Skylines, the Cinematic Podcast. As I record this, it's, I mean, who knows what day it is, who knows what day of the week it is, who knows what date it is. It's somewhere around the end of April, but the days have long ago lost all meaning. I think it might be Wednesday, but I'm, I'm not even, this isn't like a faint, I'd have to check. It's, you know, lockdown has been going on for some weeks. It's probably going to go on for, if we're very lucky, some weeks more. There was a story this morning about how the British government has has said it's not going to have the technology in place to start undoing lockdown until mid-May. And I saw that and thought, that's quite soon, isn't it? That's That's brilliant. We might be out of here in only two or three weeks, which is ridiculous that we've got to a point where another two or three weeks of everyone shutting their houses feels like really not very long. But we are we are where we are. We are trying to, to flatten the curve. On this week's show, we have two interviews. And the first of which is very much on this sort of subject, the second of which isn't. The first is speaking to my friend Claire Cox, who is, well, she's in Palermo in Sicily, a city to which she moved earlier this year, mere days before Italy went into a lockdown, far tighter than the one we've had in the UK. And apart from the fact that, you know, it, it, it doesn't sound it doesn't sound like she's having the best time in the world. And therefore, it's kind of nice to chat to her and kind of like, you know, give her something to do really a little bit. I thought it was an interesting opportunity to hear what, what a really tight lockdown looks like, because obviously Italy has been far tighter, far more officious about it than we have after after having a particularly bad crisis early on. So I'm just kind of curious to know what, what lockdown Italian style looks like and how it all feels. Then the second half of the show, we're going to do something very different. I'm going to speak to Lai Elakul, who's a senior associate at PLP Architecture, and recently took a position as the chair of the Urban Land Institute's new UK Urban Art Forum. 
and we're going to chat all about the interaction between the city and public art and how the role that art, particularly public art, plays in placemaking and in shaping our cities. Uh, one more bit of housekeeping before we get into all that though. If you were if you were paying close attention at the start of the show, you may have noticed something. This is the penultimate episode of Skylines. There is only going to be one more after this. All sorts of reasons. Uh, we decided to wrap the show up. But the big one is, as you, as you may know, I no longer no longer work for City Metric on the New States, but I'm still doing some stuff as on a sort of part-time freelance basis, but I'm not I'm not a full-time staff member. It was just getting a bit weird, like continuing to have, for me to have my kind of own little podcast as part of the City Metric brand, as part of a site that I don't work for anymore. So we've agreed to, we've agreed to sort of wrap up the show. Next week's will be, will be the final episode. I've got a bumper edition plan for that. I'm going to speak to all sorts of people who've been, been regulars on the show at one point or another about which bits of the show they enjoyed doing, what they'd like us to have done more. And just generally kind of having a sort of, you know, one last... One last victory lap about about skylines and everything we've done here, because you know it's it's my show. We're wrapping it up on episode 150. I think I think I get to be self-indulgent for once. So that's what we can do next week. We're also incidentally going to hear from some some listeners as well. So if you would, if if you are, are burning to make a contribution, and just tell us in so 30 seconds or less what you liked about the show, why why you've been listening to it for all these years. Then, then uh, if you wanted to send something to, to me at uh, johnellidge at gmail.com, then who knows, maybe, maybe you'll be included in the last ever Skylands. But that's for next week, though. This week, we do still have two fantastic interviews, so let's go to Italy. Hello. So I'm... Dialing in, as it were, from Palermo, so I've moved to Sicily in February. My name's Claire, and I'm working in communications for a small wine business out here in Sicily. I was told we, we have to describe you as a wine expert. A wine expert? Well, let's go with wine expert. That sounds far better. <laughs> there, there, I mean, there are, I can't think of anything better to be an expert in. That sounds great to me. So, it's a great thing to practice as yeah. well. <laughs> so how long, how long have you been in Palermo? So I literally moved over in February uh, to start this new position and had three weeks in the office before a short weekend in the UK to come back to complete lockdown. So I was counting earlier. I think we're on day 43. <laughs> me. So you, you'd only been in the country for a couple of weeks when, when the whole place locked down. Yeah, so it's a, a new way to get to know a city, definitely. I mean, yeah, I imagine you're seeing a huge amount of Palermo from, from your no doubt lovely apartment. Very much the two apartment blocks in front of my balcony and the odd trip to the supermarket has been the cultural uh, summit, really. So, so as I understand it, like obviously uh, Italy was the first country in Europe to be seriously hit by, by COVID-19 and it, it locked down earlier than the UK. And also the, the lockdown there is rather tighter than the one here, isn't it? I mean, what does it, what does it actually mean in practice? It's been quite a strange one to to live through, and especially, I think, in a situation like this when it's not your own country, but also I've spent a lot of time in my life living and working in Italy, but it's a new, you know, living this far south in Italy is is a new experience for me as well. And I think over the last almost nine weeks, the situation has evolved from very much watching what was happening in the north of Italy and regulations becoming stricter in terms of public transport and distancing to becoming something which at times, and this could just be an experience of, of, a, of a foreigner, but at times it's felt close to being in a police state. 
So it's been, it's had its ups and downs particularly for that. And I think there have been moments over the last nine weeks where to go out was to be in fear of being stopped by the police and having your documents checked. Particularly standing out as a foreigner was not something good. So <laughs> uh, you got to know the streets where the police and the carabinieri weren't parked and you just avoid it. And it's been quite a, an interesting situation to live through for that. I don't think I've ever felt more foreign in another European country. Wow. And the great anecdote at the minute, and I think there's been a lot of memes and various things on social media going around for this, is the, the rate at which they're publishing their new uh, documentation. So at the current, <laughs> current point, I think we're on something like version six of uh, the form that you're meant to carry around with you and fill out, which is a great idea in practice if you had a printer in your house. <laughs> And you, so, you can't really go into the office to use their one, presumably, at this point. No, because you'd need a form to do that. Ah, okay. Well, that's... <laughs> so, it's, so it's been quite a, quite a circular thing. So a good old pencil and rubber, and you just hope not to be stopped and ask the policeman, as I did last week, if you could kindly give me a new copy of the form, because I'd run out. <laughs> what are you actually allowed to do, and what are you really not meant to do at this point? So national legislation can at times vary from individual state regulation for for smaller Italian states. So what we're finding at the minute is the current situation is that the new decree or uh, legislative act will be passed on the 3rd of May, I believe. And at that stage, it's hoped that we'll move into phase two and we'll be allowed to, or smaller companies should be allowed to go back to work and there should be greater liberty of being able to go out without having a, a clear reason. At the minute, we're still in a state of lockdown and as far as you're allowed to go out for necessity, so shops, pharmacy, food shop, pharmacy, and then with a bizarre addition of bookshops and children's clothes shops being open, okay, which well, is important. confused I'm, a lot of us. I'm, I'm broadly in favour of books. And, and how often are you are you meant to go out? I mean, is it like a thing where they're saying like once a week or like can you go out whenever you need to? Or what's, what's the situation? Again, the, I think the problem has been as much confused messaging, different things being said in news, newspapers, uh, by different politicians and on the TV and radio. In theory, as of yesterday, in Sicily alone, you're allowed to go out. Uh, it was published. You're allowed to go out for a walk or a run which I tried, only to find this morning a new piece has been published saying you can only go within 100 metres, 200 metres of your house. And I think that's once a day. Wow, that's not much so, of a run, is it? <laughs> not that much. I've seen quite a few neighbours running around the block, which I think I'm probably going to try just going around in circles. Better than going around circles in my flat. So. <laughs> so, so I think one of the issues back here in the UK has been slightly overzealous enforcement of the rules by certain police forces who are kind of mm. you know, just just claiming that the rules are stricter than they are. Is that is that also a problem in Italy? I do wonder if that might be the case. It has felt very restrictive and there are various different police forces in Italy as well which have different powers, <laughs> some which are more kind of civil protection services, some which are part of the army and so much kind of more national petty crime services but they all have powers during a moment in time in theory to stop you and to find you i think the fear really lies in knowing to what extent they really do have these powers or as you say whether it's perhaps being slightly overzealous mm. 
and what kind of fine are we yeah. talking about here? Like, how much could you be, be fined? Well, there have been talks about, especially being people being stopped on beaches and things, of months sentences as well in jail. So we're not merely talking about fines, which I think can range from hundreds of euros to a thousand euros, but also small term prison sentences. Again, to what extent these are being enforced and where they're being enforced and how much this has been used, I don't know. But these are things that have been stated and the theory powers that police forces have. And you said that it feels a bit like a police state. Can you sort of unpack that a little bit? What do you mean? I think just, I mean, just interesting things or not so interesting. Right at the back beginning of lockdown, when it was perhaps slightly stricter than we're starting to see now, I got locked out of my house. Fantastic moment to choose. And uh, <laughs> therefore, I was going to ask the porter if he might have a local number to try and get someone to come and change the locks, basically. And a certain Lorenzo was found. I was, I was given a handwritten school number on a piece of paper and we tried Lorenzo. And Lorenzo didn't dare come out because he's worried about being stopped by the police. Now, his reasons for being fearing being stopped by the police actually brought up a new Italian question, which is that he hadn't paid his taxes. So, interestingly enough, part of this lockdown fear, I think, is coming, especially for uh, people that are self-employed, is that these forms and having to declare your purpose and sometimes your tax number for moving uh, from one side of the city to the other are also proving a way to track people if they're paying taxes or not. So De Lorenzo wasn't able to come and uh, change my lock, which was unfortunate. <laughs> so that was that was a good one. How did you how did you get it sorted in the end? If if, if Lorenzo wasn't wasn't able to help, who did? I know. Well, my seventy year old porter who speaks only Sicilian dialect. And I managed to somehow get a piece of plastic and to kind of pick the lock. It was a, it was a fun afternoon. Oh, wow. I learned a lot of Sicilian swear words. <laughs> and you said it feels a bit a bit difficult being a foreigner in, in Sicily at the moment. I mean, what do you mean by that? I think it's a fact that you feel very much you stand out because a major part of, of the Sicilian economy is tourism. And so in the first, even the first three weeks I was here, and I live quite central in Palermo, there's a lot of, you know, foreign voices, a lot of international kind of tour groups, a lot of attraction to all the beautiful historical sites and architectural like places of interest. And so then suddenly you go from that to absolutely nothing. And yeah, I don't think I've seen anyone non-Sicilian on my trips to supermarkets, to pharmacy over the last nine weeks so that's felt very weird and certainly you feel again it could also just come from perhaps having spent too long in words <laughs> but a certain hostility I've felt in supermarkets clearly not being a local and when they hear a foreign accent a certain kind of strange reaction now which is strange because clearly Italy was the first to go into lockdown but I think it's just it stands out more that you're not from here at the time when you really are very one of very few who is not from here. And do you have any sense of how long this is going to last or, or are you in the dark about this as ever run? So I'm very much hoping that we'll start to see things lessening over the next couple of weeks. I'm hopeful for the 3rd of May that as of uh, this week, Italian or Sicilian uh, statistics are looking positive with um, very few or in some, some areas of Sicily, no new cases of contagion. So we're hoping that if things continue like that, that especially in terms of just being able to go out without 
an immediate purpose or be able to go and browse the bookshops because if you go now you have to be able to state on entry what title book you need to buy oh, wow. <laughs> which I discovered yesterday and I tried to suggest to the lady I just wanted to look at the fiction section she wasn't having any of it so I think hopefully just freedom like that uh, would make a massive difference to be honest just to be able to go out to go for a walk to go for a run without feeling that you're watching your back and needing to have a purpose it's also worth saying, like you're in you're in Sicily. You're at the exact opposite end of the country from Lombardy, which is the the the, the place of like the really bad outbreak, right? I mean, how how serious was the pandemic in in Sicily before the lockdown? Well, so in in, in comparison to Lombardy, really not very serious at all. I've had small numbers of cases in different cities in uh, in Sicily. I'd say the major cities, Palermo, Catania have been most hit, Trapani, I think, as well. Then you have small pockets in the countryside, but no, in, in comparison with the north, we're seeing very little. It's just been quite interesting to see how Italy really has united in this instance and the regulations which have been decreed in the majority to, to, in reaction to what we've seen in the north have been very well implemented across the country. Okay, cool. And just last question. I don't know much about Palermo. Obviously, I know it's, it's like the biggest city <laughs> on Sicily. But if if you were allowed out to actually kind of enjoy the place, like what did what did it have to offer? Why 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 would one go to Palermo? So it's absolutely beautiful. It's it's a kind of mix of crumbling beauty and more modern beauty. In Palermo, you're both on the coast, so you've got beautiful beaches, and you've also got historical towns town centre where you've got it's a a city which has seen multiple invasions it's it's an island which has been ruled and conquered by many many peoples over thousands of years and so as a result you've got everything from Greek remains, Roman remains and I think possibly the beauty of it is, is despite being an island which has such a high density of UNESCO sites, they are for the most part if not badly looked after, very badly publicised. And so it does mean that you can go to these beautiful old Greek theatres or go and see the the temples in Agrigento, for example. And whereas in Pompeii, you might be surrounded by thousands of other visitors, you can sometimes on a unlucky afternoon and not in peak tourist season have them to yourself. I'm really hoping when we get out of this, be able to make the most to go and see all of these beautiful places. Also, the food is fantastic. And of course, the better... Say that the wine is rather good too. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've not been to Palermo. I have been to Pompeii, and I was surprised to find it's basically in the sort of grotty suburbs of Naples. Just imagine this place standing alone in the middle of the countryside. Exactly, that you haven't. Yeah, okay. it's all just kind of you turn a corner and you're there. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much for talking to us, and I hope they let you out soon. Yes, and sending much love back to the UK. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, as you'll know from listening to my, my exciting pre-credit sequence, that interview was a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, Claire, along with everyone else in Italy, now has her freedom to some extent. So I just thought it'd be, uh, it'd be nice to kind of get her to, to tell us what, what that looks like and, and how much life has changed. Yeah, here she is speaking on Saturday the 9th of May. Hello from Palermo. A brief update from the situation here in Italy. I think when I last was speaking to John, we were around late April, around the 21st, and Palermo, Sicily, Italy was still in deep lockdown, and so you couldn't go out for exercise or you had to stay within 100 metres of your house. But here we've now passed into what's being known as Fase Lua, so our Phase 2. In many respects, I'd say quite a lot hasn't changed. We have a new form of course, to fill in where we want to go somewhere. But most importantly, we are now allowed out for our daily exercise and parks and gardens have reopened. Though, as I did discover to my detriment today, you have to book in advance to go into the parks and they have a list at the gate. But in happy news, we are seeing little ice cream shops reopen and little restaurants and small businesses are being able to offer services for takeaway. And there are lots of work being carried out on roads and on buildings. So it very much feels that the city's in a nascent phase and everything's being prepared for a a big reopening. It looks like next week uh, the shops and museums will be able to open. And we're hoping that on the 1st of June, the third phase really of of the Fase Dua uh, will come into play. And I think there'll be greater freedom and things like hairdressers and other smaller shops will also reopen. So it's it's a period of hope, but also of great uncertainty and confusion, really. It's interesting to see how the Italian culture will work with these new lesser rules, um, but especially things like seeing how busy today the, the streets were, especially given the Italian culture of the evening passeggiata, of the evening stroll, how it's going to be to implement social distancing and ensure that we're all kept safe. I hope that uh, everyone will take these rules seriously. And fingers crossed we'll continue to see good progress here in Italy. My name is Hala El Akula. I'm an architect and urban designer with a background in sociology and political science. I work on large scale projects in the UK, and Europe, and the Middle East. 
I also lead our group at PLP Architecture called PLP Labs that looks at the intersection of people, technology and space. And I lead the Urban Art Forum for the Urban Land Institute in the UK. Okay, if that's there's that sounds like an enormously exciting career. Let's let's unpack that a little bit. Let's start with a big question. What what is the Urban Land Institute? So the the Urban Land Institute is a non profit organization which has a group in on all continents and uh, I'm part of the European and the UK group. It's globally around forty five thousand members and uh, the objective or the mission of uh, the Urban Land Institute is to promote the sustainable use of land. It brings together uh, architects, developers, city planners, local authorities, cap- investors, and so on, uh, the, you know, the various actors of the built environment, uh, and creates a space uh, for focused discussion on a variety of topics from infrastructure to cultural placemaking to uh, residential capital markets to uh, technology and, and so on. There are a number of focus groups, I would call them. So, so you lead the Urban Art Forum. Of all the many things we could be doing with our cities, why, why, why should we be dedicating part of them to urban art? Why does, why does it matter? Yes, I, I wouldn't call it urban art. I would call it culture, and I would expand uh, and use the uh, definition of uh, of the JLA, for example, of cultural infrastructure, which incorporates spaces for cultural production and spaces for cultural consumption. We're we're not talking about a sculpture in a public space only. We're talking about a whole ecosystem which includes industries which includes and now I'm talking about for example cultural production in, in particular so it, it it includes everything that gets to the, the 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 final piece it can go from a recording studio to an artist studio to an atelier where I don't know the sets are built and and so on and cultural consumption it can be that final sculpture can be a piece in a public space or in a museum or an event it can go from something that is more permanent to something that is temporary in use and it is uh, in in your uh, in your question there's an insinuation on why should this be prioritized there is a reason why the places we like to return to or to spend time in or to uh, that have a certain level of uh, attractivity have culture as one of their main features i'm thinking of some neighborhoods of london or or, or paris or milan okay so let's 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 talk about that then i mean is there any research to kind of explain why it is that you know people are drawn to areas with a lot of with a lot of culture so I think this goes back to the the role the, the role that culture can play. What's the added uh, the, the added value or what it brings to a neighborhood? From our research, what we talk about or what we what we found is it's about really creating a link between the diversity of user groups and the community living in these spaces, and it's about that connection. So we're talking about the impact of of culture on a neighborhood, the impact it can have. That can be social, economic, and environmental. So, for example, social goal can include either reinforcing the identity of a certain 
area, building a sense of, of place uh, in an area that may have been neglected or abandoned. Or it can also help bring together uh, different communities or, or inhabitant of an urban area who otherwise would not really come together. It can help achieve a number of the environmental and sustainability targets that a project or a regeneration scheme may may want to achieve. And economically, it can maybe attract a, a different type of, of visitors uh, or of tenants in the case of a, of a development, consolidating existing activities, strengthening an identity and and, and bringing people together. So, and, and this can happen in a variety of ways. And if you want, we can uh, talk about it as well. We are talking about a number of different forms of, of value here. There's kind of economic value, mm. but there's also stuff around quality of life. How do you, how do you mm-hmm. sort of quantify those different, those different things? So what, what, what we found is, and, and this is a crucial question that you ask, is, is that for each project, it will be different benchmarks and, and measurements, depending on what the objective is or what the challenge is, because each, you know, each site is, is very different. And some of them, it could be about a shifting perception. And, some, and another one, it could be about community building. And another one, it could be about actually generating uh, footfall. So it, the, that can that will vary. So once a vision of success is agreed, there is a, a some some time that needs to be spent on establishing what the benchmarks will be. Uh, so as a starting point, and what we often try, what we often forget to do from the research that we've done as built environment professional is measuring and that baseline before any cultural intervention takes place. And then uh, after that, the measurement will vary. It can go from something that is more qualitative, such as tracking comments from uh, cultural influence, uh, influencer, uh, reference case studies, uh, requests, measuring, then measuring footfall, trying to understand the changes to demographic profiles, uh, business that get, that become attracted to the area because of these new uh, activities. So you can design this uh, performance index based on what you are trying to achieve. Uh, Some of them can be linked to health and well-being and be tracked via some wearables if if it's allowed and if we can build this metric within the, the wearables. Or, for example, if it's about community building, it starts to be about measuring how often the local community is using some of these spaces and not just visitors. We're talking in quite sort of like um, conceptual terms here. Let's drill yeah. down a bit. What do you? Yes. What does the Urban Art Forum actually do? What does a typical project look like? So the Urban Art Forum is, is a think tank. So it's about two years ago now. We started having a conversation with a number of people, including local authority, developers, uh, local community, creative creatives, artists, investors, architects, communication and branding, and like cultural experts. And two things became clear. The first one was like the lack of a shared language, which meant that often culture was seen like as a bolt-on. So after going through planning, through all the RIBA stages, through and having a, a note to say that there is a cultural element that needs to be 
included later on it it came as a as a as an addition that didn't necessarily feel integrated from the beginning so what we decided to look at is when is best to start the conversation who should come around the table and we worked on a uh, on a guide or a methodology uh, which goes through six steps uh, to help these different stakeholders interact and identify cultural possibilities or opportunities for a site so it talks about the roles and responsibility of each one of them and takes them through uh, six steps and there are uh, 10 case studies associated with it we also meet uh, regularly to explore specific case studies, specific issues, and this can be event-based, are event-based, and we are looking at a future publication, and we are now narrowing down the theme. It is likely to be uh, around the issue of measurement that you just asked me about in a more detailed form. Okay, so what are the sort of things that cities should be thinking about in the realm of sort of arts and cultural development, do you think? The, what cities or the public sector or should be is looking at. I mean, in, uh, is the preservation of culture as a uh, as one of its main assets in the context of cities competing with each other? I mean, London has such a, a big creative ecosystem, and uh, a number of these uh, institutions or uh, artists or Culture groups are being pushed out or priced out or of some of the neighborhoods they have actually contributed to building. So I think the big question for uh, local uh, authorities is to how to protect and preserve and, and, and foster these. So how to design policies that protect and foster them really. Is there sometimes a tension between who benefits from the presence of arts and culture and who actually has to provide it? In that, like, often we've seen people move to an area because it's a cultural hotspot, but one of the side effects of that is that it pushes up property prices, the culture gets pushed out, everyone complains the area is not what it was. Like, how do we how do we manage that? I think there are two things. I think the public sector plays. Uh, a really important role by putting in place mechanisms to preserve that existing eco- ecosystem, but also to encourage the inclusion of of ad- ad- additional potential uh, programs. But I also feel like we're in interesting times where d- developers actually see the value in cultural uh, activation. No one wants to go to a, a place that uh, doesn't have a, a soul or that look that is, you know, dry in which people don't feel they can connect. And cultural placemaking is one of the tools uh, that can be used to to make a development more successful, to make the place more attractive and and, and more vibrant. So they do see the interest in preserving these culture, these local cultural infrastructure and in adding new ones. Now, there is a tension between prices going up as a result of these coming in. It's what happened in the Marais in Paris, which uh, was a place where no one wanted to go. And then certain communities, uh, including artists, changed the, the, and uh, took care of that neighborhood, made it made it evolve and change and, and, and have been priced out as a result of this. And, and this is where the public sector needs to I mean, that, that's maybe my 
more interventionist way of looking at things. But I, I do feel that there is a, a responsibility from the public sector to create a, a framework for this to be protected. I mean, that's, that sounds lovely, speaking to someone who's lived my entire adult life in London, where this is obviously a very live issue. The idea of some kind of mechanism to kind of mean this, that the arts and cultural spaces don't get pushed out by rising property prices sounds sounds wonderful. But how does that how does that work in practice? What does that look like? So as part of planning application, there are some requirements for a variety of community infrastructure and contributions that go to the improvement of the public realm and, and, and so on. And so we have the, the mechanisms. The idea is to actually make cultural infrastructure part of these in a more obvious way. And I, I feel like most of these mechanisms are there and it's about maybe communicating them better to the to developers and so on. But I mean, developers won't necessarily step up unless kind of like forced to, will they? I mean, communication is one thing, but how do you actually kind of <laughs> force people to play ball on this? So I wouldn't say that the developers are necessarily trying to avoid this, because if you look at some of the large schemes in the last 10 years delivered, and there are some really good examples. There are some, like I'm thinking of King's Cross, I'm thinking of some of Derwin's development and and so on. So I wouldn't put a blanket, you know, negative on, you know, like developers trying to avoid providing culture but it's true that a nudge or an encouragement is 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 welcome i mean as i understand it the problem is that the people who benefit from from the presence of culture are are quite diffuse whereas the people who would have to pay for it up front are very concentrated and it's quite difficult sort of matching matching those those two things up i mean how do we how do we make sure that like somebody is providing this thing from which they will not be the only one who benefits if that makes sense but but i think this is this goes back to the to the measurement of the and the impact discussion because it's a particular context i i feel uh, that it's less and less something that we as architects have to advocate for i feel that a number of developers and so on are convinced that about that the inclusion of culture in their scheme is something that is essential and that and in, maybe it's the context of the rise of ESG where they need to uh, report on uh, on their impact and that culture is a is a way uh, to talk about uh, social impact and measure it and establish benchmarks to be able to report on those. So maybe there is that trend, which is encouraging developers to to include culture in a more uh, in a more open way. But as part, there are several moments of a project where culture can be a real tool for everyone. Give one of your favourite examples of kind of like culture in cities, whether that's kind of a good a good piece of public art or cultural production or you know something point, point us to something concrete. There's an initiative which is called the Creative Land Trust, uh, uh, led by a number of organisation which seeks to provide uh, affordable workspace for artists uh, in in London by acquiring property and then and owning it in, perp- in perpetuity and then uh, renting it out at affordable rates to artists and 
to artists. And uh, one of the person leading that is uh, Candida Gertler, who uh, leading that initiative from the beginning, uh, along with other partners. But she had also launched a previous initiative called Studio Makers, which was also about the, prov the provision of affordable workspace for artists in London. And uh, so it's, uh, I, I think this, this is a really interesting one. Another one, uh, which is also featured in our guide is Art Night, which is a, a, an event that takes place once a year and really brings the neighborhood alive uh, when it happens. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time today. And um, I, ho I hope you enjoy the lockdown. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anich, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show, and I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.